Jim Morris, welcome back to the new school. Right. Yeah, thank you. In our first conversation, we focused on just getting a basic sense of Ibn Arabi, the uh, uh, Sufi mystic philosopher. Mm -hmm. Is that a mm -hmm. fair, yeah. brief description? Um, 12th century, born in Cordoba, Spain, became really the, the Sufi mystic uh, source for mm -hmm. much of what followed in Islam. Mm -hmm. um, and we talked about your book, The Reflective Heart, Discovering Spiritual Intelligence in Ibn Arabi's Meccan Illuminations, and your book, uh, The Meccan Revelations, uh, which you translated with William Chittick, and it was edited by Michael Chodkowitz, the French scholar. I thought now we might broaden the frame a little bit, uh, both historically and in more contemporary terms. Um, I mentioned to you that in four months ago, I was in Cordoba, Spain, and encountered Maimonides. I'm still having trouble with the pronunciation because I keep saying Averroes, but it's Averroes. Averroes. I just get the, and I need to leave out the n. Averroes, uh, and then Ibn Arabi, and I had read Maimonides before, the great Jewish uh, philosopher. Uh, I didn't know much about Averroes, the great Islamic philosopher who translated Aristotle. But one of the things that struck me the most is, why was it that these three men lived at the same time in Cordoba, Spain? Averroes and Ibn Arabi knew each other. There was a very famous encounter between them. Uh, I I can only imagine, I don't think there's evidence that Maimonides knew them, is there? No, no, it's very... No, but they must have the, known the each other. The times he left to go on to Egypt, no, it's unlikely that they would have met. But they must have known each other's work. Well, that's the odd thing. I mean, you haven't mentioned the fourth figure that makes this all even more mysterious, which is Moshe de Leon. Um, Say more um, about him. About the, well... If I call him the author of the Zohar, I, probably for your audience mm -hmm. I can do that, of course. Mm -hmm. It's attributed to right. Shimon Bar Yochai. But, uh, because the um, use of scripture for spiritual teaching, uh, I mean, later on you get this complicated uh, sort of super commentary systems of Kabbalism and all that around the Zohar that he wrote, the Book of Splendor. But in fact, if you don't get so embedded in that. The same thing happened with Ibn Arabi, that people started studying the commentators rather than the original text. But his uh, Zohar, his book of the radiance, uh, the divine radiance, is a, a book of um, what's very, it's actually phrased as kind of openings up to a group of mystics or spiritual people get together and um, open up the Torah and here's a line and, and then give a teaching about it. Often, by the way, the teachings are given by donkey drivers and garbage collectors and his way of getting past this intellectualism is to kind of put the deepest teachings in the hands of the humble, secret servants of God, just as Ibn Arabi loves to do as well. And uh, this book, um, frankly, is I, I, I remember I, I was being provocative one of the times I went first times I went back to Iran after the, uh, in 92, I think, 
And they said, well, what's new in, in uh, Ibn Arabi's studies? And I said, well, you really should read these new English translations of the Zohar because you can see how much in Spain at this time, for reasons that it, to me are still an absolute mystery because you might as well throw in Dante into the equation. <laughs> I mean, he wasn't there, but his whole formation was by the philosophic and musical and poetic traditions that were coming from Spain. It were part of this common Mediterranean world where Provence is the place between, interplace between the interface between there and, and the world of Petrarch and Dante. That, um, you know, that, I, and, and of course, actually I thought this will surely shock people and instead uh, all of these eager young Iranian scholars came up, well actually we've read everything Sholem has done and so forth, what's new, you know. <laughs> Danny Matt's work hadn't made its way to Iran at the time. Dan Matt being the new translator The new translator of, of this uh, book of right. Zohar and his Paulus Press volume was out at the time and that's right. what I was using with students and all. So, um, so what was it, by the so, way, there's an extraordinary book, or extraordinary to me, uh, called The Ornament of the World, How Muslims, Jews, and Christians Created a Culture of Tolerance in Medieval Spain by Maria Rosa Menocal. I think that, at uh, Yale. Uh, uh, she's Spanish a Yale scholar. Yeah. Uh, just an extraordinary uh, history widely held as a revelation of a golden age mm -hmm. brings to life the rich and thriving culture of medieval Spain. There was something about that time, and yeah. not only that, but these people... Uh, I, I can't speak of uh, de Leon, but, but uh, Veroes, uh, Ibn Arabi, and Maimonides, they were all polymaths. Mm -hmm. They all created these extraordinary bodies of work, mm -hmm. and each of these extraordinary bodies of work echoes down through intellectual, religious, and spiritual history ever since. Well, so why were they all together at that Well, moment? if you don't mind my adding to the mix, I yeah. would just, uh, I, I, because I did yeah. to teach this mix ever since I was at right. uh, Princeton it just came to me this is a good way to introduce people these things is um, John of the Cross and St. Teresa of Avila whose mm -hmm. ancestors were Jewish and probably <laughs> at mm -hmm. the time you know uh, but again their writings of John's not just the famous poems but also his uh, philosophical mystical philosophical commentaries on them and then Teresa's uh, works of practical spiritual life and so forth are equally part of this same uh, set of writers. After all, she's one of the two women, as far as I know, are said to be doctors of the Catholic Church, uh, the other being her, Teresa of Lisieux, who's an equally fascinating character. But um, So you have these six people. I mean, just to take six, you could add Bahia and Pakuda or others into the mix, other great Spanish Muslim mystics. But So you have, in each case, a kind of a philosopher and poet and then a practical, more practical spiritual teachers. Um, and I can't help but think that part of the reason that this came about at that time is people were able to talk to each other and practice together and whatever. I, I, the reason I got started using that and teaching those three different philosophical and mystical schools of Andalusia was that it's so much like our own time. I mean, in the, I used to say this was Western and sort of Californian that these things were all mixed up. But in fact, now in the global world, you can go to the most, uh, you can go to Afghanistan, which is like, or Yemen, or some of these places are like completely off the map and cut off. And today they're not. I mean, we all live in a world now where the 
the inescapable necessity of being able to talk, find a common language to speak about our common human experience is something that uh, isn't just an elite of philosophers and theologians has to deal with. It's something that the man and woman in the street has to learn to do. You know, it just occurred to me that in an interesting way, Andalusian Spain was a lot like California in relationship to the United States. The, the power center, Washington, D.C., was in Damascus or wherever it was mm -hmm. at that point. Uh, started one place, moved to Damascus. How did it go back? The, well, in uh, any case, the uh, centrality of uh, power had broken down in the Muslim parts of Spain, and there were just different city-states. You know, right, so. I understand that, but I mean, the, yeah. the power and the, the, the original power in the Islamic empire was Well, at that point, there, strangely right? enough, you really had a time when everything had kind of fallen apart uh -huh, because of okay. the outside invasions uh -huh. and all. And, uh -huh. uh, so people could talk in an equal footing. Perhaps that's mm -hmm. the important thing, is mm -hmm. that, of course, very quickly, both Jews and Muslims in Spain could no longer talk on an equal right. footing. They right. were uh, rather severely uh, persecuted. And when and so Maimonides forth. made his way to old Cairo, mm -hmm. he found again a place that in some ways recapitulated the Andalusian experience that people could talk to each other. Mm -hmm. Well. Perhaps, I mean, to some extent. Well, I mean, isn't it true, I believe it's true, yeah. that when Maimonides was there, that the rulers did not require yeah. Christian Jews and Muslims to wear different clothes, yeah. Yeah. and that they used all three groups to <laughs> run different parts of their empire? The reason I showed hesitance there is Ibn Arabi uh, ran into some unnamed trouble there, probably with people who didn't like what he was teaching, and mm -hmm. <laughs> skirted Cairo, only passed through briefly, and never went back, so whereas... Uh, no, that's true. There, I mean, but that, that kind of thing happened a lot, right? Yeah. In, in other words, uh, Surawardi got oh, yeah. executed. Well, the most obvious case is Abraham Maimonides. Is, you know, we have his treatise of Bull by a good friend, Paul Fenton, is translated, which is a wonderful text about showing how the Jewish community became more and more influenced by uh, Sufism at that time. Well, I was going to get time. to that, and I, let's talk about it now. But for our listeners, uh, Maimonides was, of course, the, sort of the key uh, theologian philosopher of the uh, Jewish Middle Ages, and, and to, to this day, his teachings uh, are core to Orthodox Judaism. Uh, legal, legal, <laughs> school Orthodox law. Judaism, right? And so I was astonished to learn that his son Abraham uh, adopted many of the Sufi teachings and taught them in his temple in Old Cairo. And I believe those teachings went on for several generations. Yes, afterward. they did. So, uh, and you never hear that from Jewish sources. Uh, it's just fascinating. <laughs> in, in other words, the. In, in the Jewish tradition, the, you know, and it's true of all traditions, but there's a strong focus on the uniqueness of the tradition mm -hmm. and an effort to say that Kabbalah, for example, was never influenced by Islamic tradition. Of course, uh, Avram's uh, way of teaching this was to say that the, uh, the Muslims borrowed all of this and uh, took it all from Abraham <laughs> and the patriarchs. Oh, is so, that what he said? You know, so actually, this is the primordial Abrahamic tradition. Is that uh, what he said? Is, uh, we, you know, history is full of ironies, and that was mm -hmm. one of them, is that for him, this was a pride that this is our good, which has been taken, adopted, and expanded by Which has been forgotten, others, and now we're calling it. Adapted by these Ishmaelites, and now we're taking it back. I, I find this ironic because this friend Paul Fenton and I, who is like maybe the world's expert and authority on 
well, certainly not on, on the sort of interplays between Islamic spirituality and uh, uh, Jewish spirituality, both in the Kabbalistic movement and then later in the Hasidic movement. Um, we met on the steps of the Bibliothèque Nationale in Strasbourg. We were both learning Arabic and just getting started in our lives of crisscrossed, you know, continuously. He's the one who, one of his early publications was this Treatise of the Pool by, uh, by Abraham Maimonides. But uh, as he points out, um, when the rationalist reformers, whether it be the Misnagdim or other, you know, groups, modernist groups, want to criticize, um, oh, things that they don't like as mystical in the Hasidic movement or whatever, they'll say, pejoratively, oh, these people took it all over from the Sufis and from the Muslims. And of uh -huh. course, in North Africa or whatever, when you're talking about the fundamentally shared practices of especially of pilgrimage and of holy sites of graves of men and women who were considered holy, which were shared for centuries by people from Jewish and Muslim backgrounds. Uh, then the modern day Muslim refiners, will, re reformers, or I would call them radicals, uh, but uh, will say, you know, we have to destroy these things because they were taken over from the Jews. Uh -huh. And so in, in both cases, the the Political is probably a better term than the rationalist reformers. So the people say we're rationalizing our traditions, blame everything that they don't like on the opposite tradition <laughs> equally, <laughs> the same items. They, you know. So on the other hand, in the, in the Middle Ages, you had Abraham sort of saying, well, this is something that they took us from. We're borrowing back, and it's a good thing. And nowadays, the uh, kind of uh, more uh, puritanical reformers want to blame all these things, all the spiritual elements they want to eliminate on the... Uh, the other. <laughs> and, and this brings us back to at least my reading of Ibn Arabi, which is that in many respects he was one of the deepest shapers and perceivers of what Leibniz and Huxley called the perennial philosophy, the truth at the heart of all the great spiritual tradition. Yeah. Is that a fair reading of it? Or the, the Platonic perspective on them all. I mean, to even go, you know, to, to give due, I think, to give some credit where it's due <laughs> there. So. Now, one of the traditions that came out of, of this uh, is the tradition that's, that's called the traditionalist school mm -hmm. uh, of uh, Fritjof Schoen, René Ganon, uh, Titus Burkhardt, Ananda Kumaraswamy, and uh, others like them, uh, Martin Ling, mm -hmm. and so on. Um, you mentioned uh, when we were talking before we began the interview that, that you have had an encounter yourself with uh, Fritjof Schoen's work. Mm -hmm. Tell us about Fritjof Schoen. Well, and if I may, I might say that one of the two things along with, there was reading Rumi that got me interested in Islam and Islamic thought, and the other was um, Hussein, early book of Hussein Nasser, who was one of the next generation of this same school, who's been quite influential school. in his own right, especially in the Islamic world. Yeah. So, uh, so um, I, I, I um, I, whatever I'm teaching in any historic way, I don't really like the word school too much because um, I have to add that kind of up front because I really think that what divides these individuals you've met is, intellectually at least, is as important as what um, brings them together. Mm -hmm. um, so that in the case of Guénon, he's really tied to 19th century French intellectual life and the elements of Freemasonry and the imagery. Uh, he's tied to the Theosophical movement and to a number of kind of, um, well, very specific um, intellectual and practical currents of that time, which outside of France 
don't have much uh, echo in, in later periods. Whereas uh, Schuon and Titus Burkhardt and Martin Lings are, uh, I don't think anyone can deny that besides being uh, extremely accomplished intellectuals and art historians and so forth, they're also very strong and lifelong practicing Sufis who are deeply influenced by time that they spent in North Africa. I mean, in the case of Martin Lings, you have his Sufi saint of the 20th century, and in the case of Shuan and Burkhardt, they actually were there at a time when there were still vividly living traditions, spiritual traditions. I mentioned Abdul Qadir before, but they were uh, personally involved in and learned from and were part of those heritage and kept it going all their lives. and taught a lot of other people. So there's a big gulf there between uh, these people and the earlier generation of Gengal. Was Kumaraswamy also a Sufi? Uh, well, again, <laughs> uh, he expressed most of this in terms of uh, Hindu and Buddhist tradition. Mm -hmm. But uh, if I can back up and connect this a little bit with what we talked about before, uh, I think one thing that's common to many of these figures is their realization that when you see a reality, a spiritual principle or law, you can't help but recognize it in all of its expressions. So they didn't set out, oh, here's a jumble of intellectual and spiritual and religious traditions, and we're going to somehow intellectually put them into order, but rather their emphasis on this perennial nature of spiritual teaching really grew from a, uh, in the case of leaving Ghetto aside from these later people, really grew from their spiritual practice so that it allowed people like um, Kumaraswamy and, uh, uh, for example, Leo Shaya, I never knew him personally, but who did very similar things in the Hasidic tradition and, and Leo. Jewish spiritual, uh, spirituality. He was one of their group. Uh, Leo Shaya? Shaya, S-C-H-A-Y-A. Um, but it, it doesn't really matter. I mean, you could have thrown out the Prince of Wales, uh, Prince Charles, and all that he's done. Um, I mean, outside of England, this might not be so obviously known, but obviously you think of the... Uh, his uh, visual school, of, uh, the prince's <laughs> trust that set up this visual school of Islamic traditional arts. Um, you know, who is uh, the other thing that's probably I would note here is its art that, as much as um, alongside spiritual practices, is what often tied these together and a real sense of the role of beauty and spiritual life. And of course, Burkhart was a pioneering Islamic art historian. Um, Keith Critchlow, who set up this thing with Prince Charles, that's. Uh, uh, Jose Nasser is one of the rare Muslim intellectuals of the last 60 years who's really made a consistent effort to talk about the relationship between the Islamic humanities and spiritual expressions, something that I've spent much more of my scholarly life doing. So, um, okay, if they're a school, it's a very broad and inclusive school. And uh, I think the other thing that I could say about them is they all right in such a way that people from other traditions, I, I mentioned this earlier, um, you have to know them just as, you know, uh, oh, I know, I, what I hadn't said is a lot of the key figures in the school are sort of revived Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox spirituality and philosophy in England, Philip Sherrard, the uh, Bishop Timothy Ware, and so forth. So the people who, the impetus to translating the whole of the Philokalia, which is kind of like a, it's kind of, you might almost say it's a Christian equivalent of Ibn Arabi or of the, uh, of the Zohar in the Christian tradition. Uh, that impetus to get it into English and the people who did it were again members of the same school who were very devout and practicing and uh, you know, spent their time in Athos and in the case of uh, Bishop uh, Ware became uh, Orthodox, uh, you know, not just a faithful person but a bishop and so forth. So now, Let me ask you a question here because 
this is fascinating to me. Uh, I, you mentioned when we talked before that, that, uh, that when you started reading Pritchard Schoen, that there was a period in your life, if I have it right, in which the power of his exposition was very strong. And the comprehensiveness of his And the comprehensiveness. And the, the place where I, I knew he was a practicing Sufi, uh, uh, he grew up in Switzerland and uh, France. Uh, uh, René Guénon, the French uh, uh, spiritual philosopher, was a little older. Mm-hmm. Uh, moved, Another generation. Right. Moved to Cairo, was it? In the end of his life. Where he lived a very reclusive Sufi and life. Very orthodox Muslim right. life as well. Yeah. Martin Ling came over and was part of mm-hmm. Guénon's household, yeah. actually. Yeah. Uh, uh, and then, uh, and Sean uh, 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 stayed in, uh, in Switzerland. Um, you mentioned uh, Syed Hussein Nasser, who actually, in many ways, introduced me to this whole thing. I started reading a book of his called Religion and the Order of Nature, mm-hmm. uh, and that led me back to the traditionalists. Mm-hmm. Um, and also a beautiful book of his called The Garden of Truth, The Vision and Promise of Sufism, Islam's Mystical Tradition. Very nice. Uh, so you, you mentioned that, that uh, Nasser was, in your words, your first sheikh. Mm-hmm. And you were with him in Tehran, is that right? Studying at the Academy of Philosophy that he right. set up, uh, at which the two main teachers were Henri Corbin and Toshiko Izutsu. Yeah. Right. And so you, uh, you had this extraordinary time with uh, Corbin and uh, Toshiko Itsutsu, who's the author of Sufism and Taoism, a comparative study of key philosophical concepts that you recommended to me as, yeah. as something to read. Yeah. Um, so uh, there's so many directions I'd like to go here <laughs> at once, but let me take the one that, that, is, that is most central to me. The traditionalists, for obvious reasons, are often associated with conservative politics. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for many years, I have had a sense that the perennial philosophy, which is the core of the great spiritual traditions, has also been accessible to the progressive world as well as to the yeah. traditional world. And so one of my hopes has been to find ways to create dialogue between those in the progressive community, many of whom rediscovered the perennial philosophy as progressives became more involved with spiritual life again mm-hmm. in the 60s and afterward. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and up until then, liberalism and progressivism had been quite atheistic. Mm-hmm. The whole socialist, communist movement, mm-hmm. atheist movement really cut people off from those spiritual roots in many ways. And was, this was true of the Islamic world as well. When I started traveling, most, Interesting. most intellectuals were Marxists, avowedly, or otherwise. Right. And they all, almost all became fundamentalists later. <laughs> so there's been this return, both in Islam and in the West, to spirituality. You know, that, that Nietzsche's observation that God is dead turned out to be premature. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... The question in this shattered world in which we live is whether a mutual recognition of the core 
insights of the perennial philosophy has any chance of moving us toward greater mutual understanding? That's really been a core question for me. I'm just mm -hmm. curious what your observations are. <laughs> well, you, you're preaching to the converted here since I've spent my whole life, adult life, doing ex trying to do exactly this. Oh, really? and, uh, and more specifically, obviously, to putting out the resources there, both picking the most important text that will be most useful for that task and training people from many different traditions and many different levels to carry it forward. And, uh, See, I didn't know this. I, I you mean, didn't. <laughs> no, I didn't know that that was a central life task for you. That, that yeah. is kind of the central life task. You'll meet some of my kids. You'll see <laughs> it goes on in the families. Mm -hmm. Okay. So then going back to these extraordinary people with whom you worked, and Syed Hussein Nasser, who's now a professor at George Washington, uh, mm -hmm. and I've watched some YouTube videos mm -hmm. of him. A mm -hmm. um, uh, very gentle, elegant mm -hmm. uh, man. Um, how did he come to be your first sheikh? How did, how did that come to be? Well, I, as I said, I was influenced by his writings, but I just happened to end up at his institute in, in Tehran, and I was looking for a spiritual home. I, I moved on after that, but uh, moving on, I think this is so important for people to understand who are perhaps younger or just starting out in this thing, is everyone I meet at a certain age has had many masters and many teachers. Um, it's not that you necessarily reject or find fault with something or else, but that, uh, and this is as true of Sufism as it is of many other traditions, it's very much like intellectual life. You learn what you can and what corresponds to your spiritual state, as Ibn Arabi would call it, mm -hmm. and then you move on. And if you don't, um, like anything else in life, people tend to stagnate. And, but people, you could say in a different way, people find their own place or their own level. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it, it was just, uh, uh, my whole life is a series of coincidences, if you want to call them like that, mm -hmm. where I didn't know what I was getting into. But I, it, retrospectively, I feel like I was sent to do this and sent to do that, you know, to learn, or perhaps to learn this, to learn that. And uh, that was um, someone I'd always wanted to study with, as with Corbett and Azut, so I couldn't quite believe my good luck to land in a place where they were, you know, teaching. And, uh, so tell me about... I, I must add, as I traveled around Iran, I met more and more, and got more used to the language, I met more and more fascinating spiritual teachers, musicians, and others whom I eventually moved on to working with them. Tell me about Henry Corbin. Uh, let me just say that when I found his extraordinary book, one of his many extraordinary books, Alone with the Alone, Creative Imagination and the Sufism of Ibn Arabi, and I discovered who wrote the introduction? Harold Bloom. Mm -hmm. And what's well, fascinating... Posthumously, actually. Yes, yeah. right. But what's fascinating to me is the unbelievable depth and breadth of the places Harold Bloom has been intellectually and spiritually. <laughs> yeah. You know, and he, he compares Corbin uh, to uh, Gershom Sholem, the great um, mm -hmm. uh, Jewish uh, uh, analyst of uh, rediscoverer of Jewish spirituality, um, and to um, a couple of other similar figures. Um, uh, here it is. Uh, the other one is Jonas. Uh, uh, who is that? Hans Jonas, the, Hans at Jonas. the New School. Yeah. yeah. Who was a pioneer in the study of Gnostic traditions. Yeah. Of the Gnostic tradition. Yeah. And uh, he says, Corbin, like Sholem and Jonas, is remembered as a scholar of genius. 
He was uniquely equipped not only to recover Iranian Sufism for the West, but also to defend the principal Western traditions of esoteric spirituality and so on. Mm -hmm. um, Corbin is a stunning figure. What was he like? Um, first of all, he was pretty deaf. I assume that went from very early on in life because his wife was kind of his interface with the external world. He was a musician, an organist, and uh, if you understand that he lived in a world of music, it really helps to understand not only his affinity for Gnosticism, which kind of there's a higher, better world than the world in which we live, but also his um, the sense in some ways that his works repeat themselves. It, it was uh, He could monologue. It was very difficult to carry on a the kind of give and take of a dialogue like this because he could answer your question but then he would go off as deaf people do into his own uh, way of perceiving things so that's just uh, and he was the most enthusiastic bar none philosopher I've ever encountered in my life uh, every time we met he would bring a new text say you've got to read this he was like he was like a cheerleader uh, he was like a spontaneous cheerleader at all times and yet very isolated because of his deafness and because of the incredible work habits he had to I don't know how many must have something like 30 great editions of text and 30 works of his collected works and translations so the scale of his productivity is um, is amazing I think the next thing to say about him is, like everyone in this period, you've, and it's not just Orientalists of the Islamic persuasion, but of uh, perhaps the perennialist uh, school people you've mentioned, or Gershom Sholem or others, um, he continually, at least from when he got into Islamic things, kind of led a double life in the sense of there are two, show, there are two korbans. There's the person who's known in the Islamic world as the editor and discoverer, really rediscoverer of, of Sofrawardi and the most amazing scholar who could teach at the same level and, and interact with the highest uh, educated uh, figures in Iran. And then there's the uh, philosopher of Paris, who sort of philosophe in that sense, like Ben-Henri Lévy and people like this, the long tradition, Sartre back in the 50s and 60s, whose writings and teachings of the Collège de France were followed by intellectuals, artists, and others who, and his colleagues were mostly philosophers or teachers of the philosophic parts of other traditions. So, uh, and he was there, he was a public figure in France. He wasn't an Orientalist, he was simply a public intellectual figure, very widely followed, uh, uh, especially for his theories of the imagination and building bridges between philosophy and the arts and, and uh, literature and music. And so he has two heritages as a result, uh, two Henri Corbins, uh, the, the French uh, philosopher intellectual and the uh, student of Islamic spirituality, mysticism, and philosophy. And uh, paradoxically, he was doing, I remember when I get together, he'd say again and again, il faut sortir la philosophie islamique de la, du ghetto de l'orientalisme. We've got to get Islamic philosophy, Islamic thought out of the ghetto of Orientalism. It's too important to be wasted on a few scholars, you know, that we have to get it out there in the world. And uh, as I was saying, you know, I was a good student to have. That was my intention all along. And I now, he, really he taught at that. the Aranos conferences with Carl Jung. Well, he, I don't know who founded them. Uh, probably I said lady. he taught at them. He taught at them, he and Sholem, and uh, there are several other people right. who are obviously and, key characters there. In a way, he had what strikes me as a completely fascinating critique of Jung. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and it was, at least as he tells it, Ibn Arabi's critique of Jung. And so I read Ibn Arabi in the light of reading Carl Jung, the great mm -hmm. uh, Swiss yeah. psychoanalyst. And the core of that critique, if I understand it correctly, is that whereas Jung believed, uh, I guess I'd, I'd like to say two dimensions of the critique. 
One is that whereas Jung believed that the that to discover the whole self, which is mm -hmm. to say reality, uh, you needed to integrate shadow. Mm -hmm. And Corbin believed that you didn't need to integrate shadow, that shadow was something to be transcended in a movement toward pure light. And at least he was quoting Ibn Arabi in that respect. However, <laughs> and I, this is partly the reason I... Um, Corbin was the... In the modern times, in a living form, the only intellectual Gnostic I've ever met. And for the Gnostics, that's you just described exactly all the classic ones, whether they be Christian, uh, Jewish, or whatever other forms of Gnostics that Jonas and others uh, come into. This world is to be transcended or left behind um, because the higher true world is this world of, as I said, music, uh, for example. And he found the Gnostics like Sotrawardi, like the Sheikhis, in the Islamic tradition. He was often the first person to bring them to wider attention. And then he interpreted people who weren't Gnostics at all in that light as well, like uh, the philosopher Avicenna, who's the furthest thing imaginable from a Gnostic. He may have been a different kind of dualist, but not a Gnostic. So um, I would have to say that uh, Ibn Arabi and Jung are very much on the same path and talking about the same thing in the sense that our task of human beings is to discover and integrate, he uses the language of the divine names, but the divine names are all polarities. They are all, they're not dualities, whereas for the Gnostics they're dualities. You go for the good side and you leave behind the dark, whereas for uh, the entire, not just Ibn Arabi, but the entire Islamic tradition, you have to integrate all of those divine names. In other words, you... You integrate if, the dark and the light. There's, there's not... The dark is not a substantial reality. What is reality is shadows. <laughs> right, okay. And so enough. you to the discover... The whole cosmos is a shadow The whole of, cosmos of, of is God. ours to learn and appreciate and explore as, in a way, we are God's, as the Hadith has it, ultimately we are and we discover that we are God's eyes, God's hands, God's all of God's senses and... Uh, there's no one privilege, by the way, sense or faculty for that, that everything we do is this integration of discovering the integration of the divine names. Because, and, and I, I love to do a simple spiritual exercise with my students to get this dimension of the Quran across them, which is I have them sit in a circle and start, and I, it's a little blasphemous, but they get over it. They're, they're not very into blasphemy anyway. But simply say, if you were God, if you were the creator, what would you eliminate in the world? So it brings out, and we're all naive dualists, we're all Gnostics in our experience is, is Gnostic. In that sense, we all tempted towards Gnosticism. And of course, as they begin to eliminate all the things like mortality, disease, misunderstanding, miscommunication, all the things that are built into the human situation of this polarity of clay and of spirit, um, quickly they, they come back to God and they realize that in one divine imagination, all possibilities could be exhausted. But that, then what? There is no discovery. There is no appreciation. There is no sharing. If there is only the one without no its manifestations, there no... is nothing to be learned. Right. Right. And it's only through the separation that the appreciation of each of these dualities. So we're mm -hmm. here to, knowing is appreciating. Mm -hmm. And that therefore, for Ibn Arabi, as for many of the Hadith, the deeper we engage actively with the suffering that is inseparable from the world of creation, 
Suffering is not just something that sends us away to the world of light and beauty and everything. Suffering is the very essence of the deepening of our discovery of what our true vocation is as, um, as that dimension of the divine reality, which is truly a mirror of all the divine names, which is created in God's image. Mm. And uh, that's, you know, Rumi has this wonderful image of the chickpeas in the pot, which says it all, that, you know, a, a hard chickpea is not much fun you know, to consume. You know, you have to cook it a long time for it to really take all of the savors, all of the tastes of all the other vegetables and foods and all that are there in that pot, which we call the dunya or this lower life or this lifetime or whatever language you want to use. So, so no, I don't think Corbin was right about Ibn Arabi in that sense. But the book definitely expresses his uh, Gnostic tendencies and boy, Harold Bloom will find a Gnostic wherever one exists. Yeah. You know? So his, his whole sensibility, as he now comes out and openly says, is to find that. So, you know, for non-philosophers, this may all sound very airy-fairy or just not that important, but especially since most people translating terms for spiritual knowing and awareness in Islam often use the word Gnostic as an equivalent for, in the Greek sense of gnosis, of sapiential knowledge. And of course, he's a, of course Ibn Arabi is a Gnostic in that sense, but in the uh, actual historical sense of the dualists, um, no, they're non-dualists, that's the whole point. And uh, look, it's taken me a long time, I'm just beginning to discover the, the depths of this vision of the human condition. And to let go of that perfectionism which um, makes us dualist. And uh, again, one of the two chapters I'll talk about in Ibn Arabi tonight is one where he says, you know, uh, he says, whenever you have this tendency to say, that's not God or that can't be God, you know, um, he talks about his tendency to do that. And then how he come, God comes to him and he has a conversation. He says, be on guard against that guardedness, you know, mm -hmm. be on guard against anything that makes you want to say, this is not, you know, neti, neti, you know, this is not God. No, it all is uh, of time. Yeah. No, no, Kira wanted to ask a question. Kira <laughs> Epstein. Yeah. Uh, I'm very fascinated in the repeated references that you've made about uh, the importance of integrating culture and poetry and art. Mm -hmm into your intellectual pursuits and other... Communication. Mm -hmm. And I'm just wondering, I'm particularly interested in, in your personal experience of this in your life. I mean, if you want to talk about it in, in the literature, that's fine too, but I'm interested in... Actually, I, I was going to go exactly there. Great. I was going to ask you to okay. say more about your own spiritual journey, which is really what Kira's asking. Well, there's so many ways to approach right. that, but um, on the one hand, I was a pure intellectual when I left the University of Chicago, a very frustrated one growing up on a farm in the country with no people to talk with. But on the other hand, it was the one thing that existed in that pre-digital age out there was music, and uh, that was the one thing we were allowed to deepen. And in some ways, although I would all think I'd be a physicist and then a historian, and then gradually, you know, Chicago, you, you ended up doing a lot of things. But um, so the, the, the integration did not come about right away. I mean, I, I read the mystics and just loved them, especially Rumi, but I was doing philosophy. I was doing very intellectual and conceptual activities. Um, where that part of understanding of things really came in. So on the level of experience, I had the life with the intellectuals and the life out with the musicians and the Sufis and learning zikr and, you know, exploring the, all these 
mystical groups all over Iran while I was living there. And certainly that's a track that I ended up being dominant in my life. But at that point, I, I, it really took a long time to master the poetic traditions. These aren't easy ones to penetrate, Rumi, Hafez, and all these things. They spoke to me. And they, when I say poetic, poetry and music are inseparable in that tradition. And you have to realize, the Islam people talk about the Islamic expression of Islamic culture that's central everywhere is music. And yet somehow people give this power to the fukaha and think, oh, of course, they're all saying you shouldn't have music and you shouldn't have visual arts, but of course, visual arts, architecture, music, these are the things that draw people into the tradition. And so, but I wasn't, my trade was the intellectual side of things. That was why I was getting a PhD and that was why I was going in. In fact, I ended up in banking for a year before the Aga Khan hauled me off to another life in Paris. So... Um, at that point, none of that was integrated. What really began to make me see how important this was was a couple of things. Living in the sort of film capital of the world, which is Paris, and having a bunch of kids, and I, so I could see three or four great films every day. So I got my training you know, from the bad quit that was Parisian life there. Then when I came back to teach, everything that I think I've learned really that's important to pass on in life came from the challenges of teaching. I mean, I come from a family of high school teachers, teachers before that, but uh, because it's in the teaching that I began to see the concepts of these philosophies. I began to, just by trying, what can I find to get these ideas across that's part of the culture that my students are in? And when I was a kid in the tractor, I would read Dostoevsky, I would read Yeats, I would read all these. The, 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 it, I was fascinated by the mystic. I didn't know it. That was just called the English philosophic tradition. You know, Walt Whitman, Yeats, uh, Eliot. This was my original childhood access into that tradition. But when I got to, I was lucky. I ended up at Oberlin. Half the people were musicians. They, you know, so it was very easy. My colleague in Jewish studies, was, uh, for much of that time, there was a famous uh, musician and musicologist and so forth of uh, uh, not Jewish music, but of fiddle music and things like that. So probably it was the challenge, the stimulus of having those students who were artists and musicians, and the fact that I found that was quickly the most effective way to get across the realities of the classical authors that I was teaching, whether they be poets or mystics or mystical philosophers and theologians like this. So it was really the challenges of doing that teaching that just kind of... And so I, what I started to do and learned to do in that teaching situation, what happened in the larger world during those years was that pretty much in every Muslim country, not only did the traditional cultures of the countryside get destroyed by the process of modernization, but the next generation of people coming along, by and large, grew up having no knowledge of those traditional cultures. That's, where, that's really where I practically broke with the traditionalists, because when I started out, there was a tradition there, and it was wonderful, and I understood why they were so attracted to it. But by 20 years later, um, it was being died out and massacred and blown up by, by the new political challenges and new forms of Islam that had come on the stage in that time. So uh, I moved from a situation where I was teaching mostly Americans to in England teaching mostly, well, and, and I was traveling all over the world uh, for foreign office and British council and so forth, lecturing in other countries. So I quickly found that for teachers in Muslim countries and for um, students and younger people in those countries, the same things that I used to bring alive the tradition in 
a college and the American cornfields, you know, were the same things that they had to rediscover now and to bring alive for them in their own cultures. And of course, the people who happen to be creators, musicians, artists, and all were saying, wow, here's somebody who understands, you know, why and what why I'm doing and what we're doing. But it, it's not by any special artistic credentials, it's just by the sheer necessity of having to communicate something. And uh, that's what Ibn Arabi loves this kind of thing. He calls it makarola, God's uh, trickiness, God's uh, <laughs> accomplishing things you know, that you could never imagine were gonna happen yourself, but they turn out to be important. And of course, once you get involved in that, you discover that the people who are doing that in a Jewish context or a Buddhist context or a whatever context, you know, we're all on the same page here. We all can see that in this modern world where people are cut off from what was tradition, recreating it doesn't mean going back, it means going forward. And of course, then you start to see the whole tradition differently because you realize that uh, these people were not classics. These people like Rumi writing his poetry or Attar and all, they were the avant-garde of their time. They were saying things, you know, when Attar says, you know, uh, uses Mahmoud, the conqueror, uh, the great Turkish slaughterer, as an image of God's wrath and Jalal and so forth. Of course, everybody then for a thousand years uses the same image, but it's like using Stalin or Hitler as an image of this challenge of what God brings upon us in this life that we have to deal with. And it's really much more concrete in their own time than after it's turned into a classic. And uh, so, uh, I'm sorry, that goes on and on. No, I, I get enthusiastic, you can see, as I start talking about this. <laughs> so you mentioned, this is just a piece, but you mentioned uh, your work with the Aga Khan, and yeah. uh, you've been involved with the Ismaili tradition. And the Ismaili tradition, if I remember correctly, is very much the one that Corbin uh, mm -hmm. And, and I know just a little bit about the Ismaili tradition, but, the, but culturally, the Aga Khan and the Ismaili tradition is extremely interesting uh, in terms of its survivorship. And uh, the, uh, I have a friend who worked for the Aga Khan Foundation, David Bombright. And, uh, and so I've been quite fascinated by the how can I say it, the cultural enlightenment and sophistication with which the Ismaili tradition has navigated the turbulence of Those earthquakes of the last 30 years. Right. Uh, say a little more about your experience with the Aga Khan and the Ismaili tradition. Well, and, and um, again, you'll notice I do this a lot. I like to become more concrete and right. say that my own experience yeah. grew out of wonderful Ismaili friends that I had in grad school. And uh, it was really, I'm sure it was through my experience with them and working with them for years there that, that he decided, hey, this outsider can be useful for how did he, our purposes. How did he help you? How did he work? With, what well, did he, he ask you to do? He, well, he set up, before I was involved, basically um, Izutsu, and Dario Shaigan and a Hussein Ziaya, a colleague of mine at, uh, at uh, Harvard at that time, who was coming back to Iran, and uh, myself. Right before the revolution, we realized things were going bad. It was like the same thing, this kind of cultural landslide where the architecture, art, everything was just kind of being thrown out with this sudden wealth. It was very much like the parable of Midas and everything turning into gold, but you can't eat any of it. And so we had the idea of creating a center that would look at the experiences of other countries undergoing rapid modernization. And we were all thinking of Japan as, as the case we wanted to use, where somehow people managed to avoid this wholesale destruction of the traditional culture. 
And so we set up the center with the help of the queen to, uh, and I was just planning to finish all my PhD and go back there and spend the rest this of my life working on this task. No, in, in Tehran. Oh, this was in Tehran. In Tehran, right before the revolution. But you said with the help of the queen. Well, I mean, the funding came from the state. Uh, she also set up Hussein Nasser's uh, foundation, you know, the uh, queen in, in Iran. Of Iran at the time. Thank you. And uh, so, of course, everything collapsed <laughs> as part of this general uh, decades of earthquakes. And uh, I had to leave that behind. But uh, when I got to Paris, basically what the Aga Khan had done, uh, he wanted to set up, I don't know whether I should, I don't want to violate any confidentiality mm -hmm. agrees here, but not that it's a, a negative mm -hmm. thing. But he, let's say he had far-sighted goals to, again, set up uh, institutions that would enable the larger Muslim community to navigate the challenges of modernity in the same way that the Ismailis had done so successfully. And just to be concrete, uh, the villages that I visited with my friends who are anthropologists and all in Iran had gone in one generation from having almost basically nobody literate to having 99% literate, including all of the women. And so my anthropologist friend from our, was back there said, how can we take this model of one generational transformation and carry it over into the rest of this country and other countries so they can make that in incredible leap from you know, traditional village culture to, uh, to a modern you know, literate society and all. And uh, um, so anyway, how did I end up with the Aga Khan to get back to your question there? So, uh, so he wanted to use um, the writings, uh, also support um, the publication Corban had never published his, he'd edited his Smiley texts, but never translated them. And he had the translation. So he wanted to support Madame Corban in getting these translated. So I ended up being sort of one of those people who was uh -huh. operative in getting those translations done. But um, in the end, the institu institute uh, there became something else, uh, perhaps more modest in scale, although by now it's become kind of what he had foreseen. Um, and I, I'm still great admirer of the work that he's done there. But um, so it was, uh, I'm, but I, I would also add that everywhere in the Muslim world there are people like that who had that vision. Uh, certainly I said uh, Dario Shaigan or uh, certainly Izutsu realized what was going on. And uh, so there were, and Hussein Nasser and so forth. But um, having the levers of influence so that you can actually translate your understanding of what's going on into effective communal action. Uh, that was the great challenge that I was really happy to take on there because I had been trained in the tradition of Islamic philosophy where that's what people did. They weren't, Averroes wasn't just a philosopher, he was a judge, he was a reformer, he was many other things in the Spain of his time or Nasiruddin Tusi and all. So um, although I didn't end up staying with that institution for my life, Pretty much everywhere I've gone, that's remained my uh, my ideal is to kind of construct a arc that would, um, on the one hand, uh, navigate this destruction of traditional culture, which is continue ongoing in our own time, provide the materials for the revivification of the highest achievements of the civilization, but of course necessarily in a world in which these cultures and civilizations can no longer be separate. We're in the um, we're in a world now, um, which my teachers at Chicago, I remember Hannah Arendt in particular, she loved this novelist, Hermann Broch, who's not very well known, but Austrian novelist. But like everyone else there who kind of survived the Nazis and the Holocaust and all, and Chicago was a German university at that time, um, they knew that traditional Western civilization was gone. 
And the question he, he writes his books are always about no longer and not yet, that we're in this period of no longer in a traditional world, but not yet in the world to come. <laughs> and I use that <laughs> eschatological term a little bit <laughs> advisedly here. It's, it has a double, double resonances. So um, what is this world going to look like in which people can no longer live in their separate regions, their separate intellectual cocoons, in which they have to both, and the practice is always far more important than the theory, but how can we construct a culture that will be a vibrant, living, creative culture that is shared by everyone in the world, that, take, that still gathers all these treasures that have almost been lost in the flood, and brings them back to life and brings them into part of people's lives. And I must say, when I got invited out here in 1989, I thought I'd died and gone to heaven because that's <laughs> what everybody else was doing out here in, in, in this uh, Bay Area. And uh, I, it's been a constant stimulus on the one hand, even when I'm not here, and a constant solace when I'm dealing with the destruction without the creativity, and, and therefore a source of hope in, for this this world to come because um, there are only so many ways out of the destruction and uh, and you've got a, a bunch of them stacked books stacked in front of you here that are part of that but the living side of it is not the study of the old books the living side about it is the artists the filmmakers the painters the musicians who can take this realization and make it part of a culture that, frankly, people consume or live within. It's not consume in the sense of use up, but it's not enough for intellectuals and uh, philosophers, as in the past, to master this and to be able to do this. What we really need today are the creators, the, and this is uh, social creativity. I, I love watching, just to give you an example, um, some of my students who've become Muslim, whether they're African-American or just normal American, are they kind of have to go through all the stages that Jewish communities did. You know, they, they first have to create Montessori schools, you know. <laughs> then they have to do a school, find the right teachers for kids in primary school. And then, and this happens so fast when you're raising your own kids, and then middle school and then high school. And then suddenly they're thinking about social welfare institutions. How are you going to take care of the aged? How are you going to handle unemployment and chronic unemployment for people in their 20s and 30s? So life is like this ball game that never stops. The pitching machine keeps throwing these new challenges at you. And Americans are uniquely adapted to be the, uh, now it sounds imperialistic, but I'm, I'm in California, I can't help but think this out here, <laughs> that, um, that people are adapted to see creativity not as a danger, but as a necessity and a wonderful necessity. Jim Marsh, thank you so much for being with us at the New School.